How are you doing today? Good. Two of you are doing fine. That was not compelling, to be quite honest, but uh, even for the two that answered. But I'll trust that uh, you thought it was a rhetorical question. How are you doing today? Good. That's far more convincing. I'm thankful for that. I'm so thankful for the opportunity for us to be together today, for us to be at the throne of God together, worshiping Him, centering our hearts and our minds and our lives on what He has for us. And uh, I pray today that uh, as He meets with us, that He will speak to our hearts and our lives, and He will build us up in our faith to walk into Him. I want to invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of 1 Timothy. Actually, it's a letter. It's a letter of 1 Timothy. will be in chapter 1. We'll be in verse 3 in just a moment. It'll take me a couple of minutes to get there. But I want to introduce a new series to you today entitled Citizen Christian. Citizen Christian, living out the gospel in an unstable world by an uneasy conscience. In 1994, August of that year actually, Kristen and I moved to Fort Worth, Texas. The big city, here we come. And upon our move, I was to begin seminary in a few weeks and she was to begin her teaching career. So with very little money in the bank, no jobs, and enough lack of sense not to be threatened by either one of those realities, here we are in the big city. Quickly, after looking in the classifieds of the newspaper, that was this little thing that was on paper and print and this section of, anyway, never mind, it doesn't matter. They're not coming back. I found an opportunity for a landscaping job. I should have known there was a reason no one else had taken it yet. So the next day, I went for the interview that I had secured. And after a few moments of really a question basically of what's your name, that's good enough, you're hired. That should have been another indicator this was not a job that I wanted. He told me, he said, now, there is one requirement on our job that I need you to understand. And I said, okay, what's that? He said, there's two things we never talk about on the job with, co with clients or coworkers. And I bet if we had three guesses, it would take us half of one to guess what those two things are, right? Religion and politics. Now, some of you are already ahead of me this morning, and I just want to confirm, yes, I'm going there. And some of you are trying to figure out how you can get out the back. I hope that you're convinced by the end of the day you won't need to leave the back. But I do want to talk about these two. You see, the next day I showed up for work and he sent me out with his sister who worked for him and led one of his work crews, of which it was she and I, basically. He hands me a shovel and a pickaxe. Red flag number four, I don't want this job. But again, I didn't have the good common sense to know that. And so I climbed into the very small cab of a very small Toyota pickup with an older, strange woman. Now by older, I mean she was in her late 30s. I was in my mid-20s. And by strange, I don't mean that it's strange because I didn't know her. I mean she was strange. 
And her first statement out of her mouth was, so you're a seminary student? Yes. And all I'm thinking is, do not discuss religion or politics. Religion or politics. And she says to me, well, I just got to tell you, nobody around here likes seminary students. They don't pay their bills. Good. Well, I'm glad that we've established that. And I don't go to church much because I don't really believe in God. Oh, no. What do I do now? If she brings up politics, I'm done for. We've already covered half of what we're not supposed to talk about. As long as I can remember, these two topics have been off limits for public discourse. Is it not true? And everybody just kind of understands that for some reason. Yet I found these to be two issues that most people feel very deeply about. And so I have to ask the question that I I ask of myself that I think many of us ask. Why is it we cannot talk about that which we feel most deeply about? You ever wonder that? Why is it that we can't talk, we can't discuss that which we feel most deeply about? As the founding and lead pastor of LifePoint Church, the last 16 years have have shown an increasing difficulty to navigate election years. Now, that's just a personal testimony, but I also think it's an acknowledgement and an observation of reality. And I would say, irregardless of how volatile the conversation or discussion has gotten publicly, three factors have made this most evident. Factor number one is what I would call a diminishing spiritual and moral compass of the culture in accordance to God's word and the acceleration of its downward spiral with an increasing animosity towards the church. Now understand, I'm not complaining and whining here, okay? I, I don't want you to hear me saying that. I'm just saying in my own personal observation, that's what I've seen. A second factor is the inability for civility in individual dialogue, in public discourse, and political debate. You don't find those three things anymore. Civility is lost far too often. A third factor is the diminishing options for Christians as representatives in government and political process. I can just be honest with you, Christians shouldn't look very quickly and be able to say, oh yeah, there's a whole slate of people that fully represent my positions. It's like needle in a haystack. Far, far too often. And I could lengthen this list, but I couldn't add any more to it that were more severe items for sure. But if I had to add a fourth, it would rival the top three as this. An inability of Christians to articulate a strong biblical and theological foundation or argument for the issues that we face. Now, I'm not blaming Christians for this. I want you to hear me saying that. Quite frankly, I think the fault lies with the church and with church leadership. For two generations now, all we've heard is that doctrine divides, and so we've just stopped teaching it. Well, friends, doctrine does divide. It divides truth from error. It divides Christians from worldliness. It divides the things that matters because it distinguishes us for who we are. And so I think the church in its desire to diminish the role and the importance of doctrine 
has left most Christians in this generation with a severe weakness of biblical teaching regarding the issues that we've already identified most of us, at least one, if not most of them, feel deeply about. Issues that govern our life, issues that we deal with every day. And while religion and politics are the top two off-limit topics for public discourse, they remain the most important. But they're difficult for a purpose, for a reason. Their difficulty is not without understanding. And let me just say this. This is not a situation that has only arisen in this generation. It's not your fault if you're under 40. That You need to understand that. This has been true for ages. The biggest world problems didn't start with this generation. They've surely grown bigger. You know when the biggest world problem began? That continues until today? Genesis 3. Genesis 3. And it's been true of every generation since our mother and our father fell from the Garden of Eden. And the same temptation to defer, to deflect, to shift blame has been a principal strategy of us trying to undo this uneasiness. Today I want to introduce a series to you entitled Citizen Christian Living Out the Gospel in an Unstable World by an Uneasy Conscience. Quite frankly, it's an uneasy topic for me to even dive into. There is no glory nor goodness. Well, I'll, I'll remove the goodness. There's no glory for me to move into. I, I believe a series like this will equally offend all attenders. Including myself. I'm offended at even having to do it. And I joke about that a little bit. In this series, I'll address a number of topics over the next three to four weeks related to our citizenship. Primarily, it will be an introduction to biblical and theological doctrine pertaining to those chosen topics. If you've been around LifePoint much, you know you've heard me talk about it is my agenda every week to get into your mind. Why? Because the way we think will determine the way we live. That's why God gave us truth, and that's why the Savior of all things is the living truth. And as I told you last week, none of us own the box that God lives in. So I think at different times, in different ways, to different extents, we'll all find ourselves under deep conviction and God calling us to trust in Him. I hope and I pray you find it helpful because in the midst of the chaos in which we live today, Christians have a higher calling. A higher calling. My aim is twofold, is to appeal to this higher calling to which we have. I want to equip us as Christ followers with a biblical and a theological foundation to bear a faithful witness to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in the public square, wherever that square leads us, on Monday morning throughout the week. But I also want to labor through this to build unity as the church for the advancement of our gospel mission. Our higher calling as a faithful witness 
with the church is to gospel mission. And it is imperative for us that we sense the urgency of our mission because if we obey our Savior and read the times as they are, there's not a lot of time left. And that urgency should compel us even more. So where do we begin to navigate such complex topics with grace and truth for Christian application? Well, today I begin the series with the sermon entitled Citizenship and the Christian Conscience. Citizenship and the Christian Conscience. Now, my starting point may seem a little disconnected to you, but there's intentionality to my strategy, and I'll tell you why. I begin by addressing the Christian conscience because I believe it is what must guide us through seasons within which we now find ourselves. It's imperative, and too often we've negated the discussion about our conscience and how God intends to use it in our lives. And so I want to return us to that. The series subtitle of this series is borrowed from a book with a similar title written by a theologian whose name is Carl F.H. Henry. The book was written in 1947. And it's probably one of the most acutely appropriate writings for us in our situation today. In his book, Carl Henry detailed the complaint against evangelical failures in the public square. But he also issues a call to renewal, a call to the understanding of the things of God set forth in His Word and for us to give deep thought and serious thought to our lives that we might be able to apply them for a faithful witness. Here's how he, Dr. Henry, explains the writing of this book. He says this, The uneasy conscience of which I write is not one that's troubled about the great biblical verities which I consider the only outlook capable of resolving our problems. In other words, he's not saying I'm wrestling with the teachings of God's Word. He's actually saying I think these are the only things that can solve the issues that we're facing today. But rather, he goes on, one that is distressed by the frequent failure to apply them effectively to crucial problems confronting the modern mind. It is an application of, not a revolt against, the fundamentals of the faith for which I plead, he writes. You see, I fear today that one of our greatest problems is that the Christian conscience is not as shaped by a biblical and theological teaching, nor the principles, nor the ethics, nor the morals, nearly as much as we are inclined to be influenced by trending topics, hashtags, what we once called political correctness, and public opinion. We'd rather beckon God to forgive us for our disobedience than risk being publicly shamed, being virtue signaled, or being culture's latest cancel victim. Christians should have an uneasiness about the age in which we live because this is not our home. It's not ever going to be our home. But this is where God has placed us for this time, for this age, and for this season. And we are here 
for one reason alone in all that we do, and that is the proclamation of the kingship of Lord Jesus over all things, creation and people, and yes, the public as a whole. We live as faithful witnesses in the age in which God has placed us. And there is no question about His purpose for our life in the time in which He has left us here. And our uneasiness must not prevent us from engaging with the hope and the truth of Jesus Christ. Satan is at work in this world And your uneasiness is a first indicator of his work. Today I'm going to spend the remainder of my time simply on this. That Christians must recognize the value of and cultivate a healthy Christ-centered conscience according to God's truth. Christians must recognize the value of and cultivate a healthy Christ-centered conscience according to God's truth. Now, while my strategy may seem a little awkward that we begin with conscience before we move into religion and politics, let me tell you why. Because beginning in two weeks, we'll begin a study in community groups on developing and cultivating a Christian conscience. I can't give you a clear, definitive answer to every problem and situation that you will face in your life. Scripture is sufficient, though, to speak to us in such a way so that God can lead us. And conscience is one of the critical elements of the way God created us to lead us. That's why I begin here. Go to your scripture in 1 Timothy now, chapter 1, verses 3 through seven and follow along as I read aloud. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Verse five. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. May God bless the reading the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of His Word today. And Elder Paul is writing to a youthful Timothy, and he is warning Timothy against the false teachers that are prevalent in the world today. Those who present in their teachings, those who purport ideologies and theories and philosophies and speculations that are counter to the gospel. And they are ever so subversive. They contain elements of truth, but they are in fact darkness and condemnation. And he says this. That the reason he is warning Timothy is out of a motivation of love. And this love originates from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. 
he goes on to say that those who swerve away from these three originating motivations, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith that define their love as their motivating factor, those that swerve away from these wander into vain discussions and ignorance. And ignorance. In other words, what he's saying is that what they call love but originates with other motives outside of these three actually are acts of ignorance that deceive and destroy. And what he means by acts of ignorance is literally an ignorance to the truth of God's word. It's not just a, an absence of intellect. No, they've overexercised their intellect. He says that the true expression of Christian love must originate from a good conscience and a pure heart and a sincere faith. Friends, what I want you to see today is the importance of a Christian conscience and its work along with a truly saved heart, a heart that has been regenerated by the Spirit of God and is walking by faith and obedience to Jesus Christ and a faith that is anchored in the gospel. A good conscience that is anchored by the gospel and biblical truth is essential for the Christian life. Therefore, we must hold a basic understanding of what conscience is. Paul elevates the value of the conscience for our walking in obedience, Christians. And so what is a conscience? Well, many might argue that, well, conscience is kind of like the little white angel on one shoulder and the little red devil on the other. And one whispers good things and the other, well... Whispers a lot more and is often a lot more compelling. Well, kind of, but not really. No, that's not the conscience. What is the conscience? Let me uh, strike at a working definition. And much of our study together in community group is just going to be considering what it is and how we build a conscience and, and how it works and how God intended it to work in our heart and in our life because it's so important. But friends, to simplify, a conscience is the mind and the voice of our soul. Which is formed in God's image, but it is broken by sin. And it is reshaped by our faith in Him. And the regular diet of information, of experiences, and of practices of daily life that create our self-awareness and calibrate our moral orientation. Conscience is that which is definitively part of us, but is completely independent of us. It constricts us as quickly as it confirms us. You have a mole within you. <laughs> Telling on you. Who does it tell? You. And you know it's right. As for faith element of conscience that shapes it, let me argue this, that both religion and self-righteousness do nothing more than weaken the conscience. Religion weakens the conscience because, well, there's no need for it. I've got all the rules I need, and I'll add more if something comes up. Self-righteousness weakens the conscience because it sears it. It says, there's no need for conscience. What's out of bounds? There are no guidelines. We're all free. You see, only the gospel forms a good, healthy conscience. And the conscience is one that is constantly changing and developing. Therefore, we must prioritize it for the health and well-being of our life. Conscience is so important that the Bible teaches we should maintain a good conscience at all times, neither denying it nor ignoring it. 
Now that doesn't mean our conscience is always right. But it does mean this. To ignore it is always wrong. I can remember in junior high. Our band director would stop us. And he would go listen if you're going to make a mistake. Make it loud enough so we can hear it. Because if we don't hear it we can't fix it. Sometimes the only way that we come to know where we need to repent, to grow, and to mature are by the sins that we've become perfectly comfortable committing. And that's why conscience is so important for us. Your conscience cannot make a wrong thing right, but it can make a right thing wrong for you. Your conscience will not always be right, but it will always be wrong for you to betray it And to deny it. And that's why Christian community becomes one of the most important environments to cultivate conscience. For as you fellowship with other Christians who are seeking to walk faithfully to Jesus, it both strengthens the good and exposes the aspects where it does not align with God's word so that you can grow and change. And so in the next two weeks as we begin, I implore you to gather with us in group. And begin a study where I believe God wants to do a powerful work in the midst of a very chaotic season in the lives of His people. Today, I want to offer five features that demonstrate the value of conscience. These will be quick. They will be direct. Five features that demonstrate the value of conscience. Feature number one is the conscience is essential because it speaks with a voice that is independent of me. Conscience is essential because it speaks with a voice that is independent of me. Paul amplifies this for us in the 7th chapter of Romans. Listen to him as he speaks of what's taking place within him. Romans chapter 7 verse 15 says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Wow, dude seriously needs some safe space. He's struggling, right? And yet you read that and go, oh, somebody else deals with that too? I mean, he's talking about the war of sin versus the new regenerated heart within in that spiritual battle. But in the midst of describing the war, he amplifies for us the role of conscience because if there was nothing in him going, Paul, dude, that is wrong. He would never even worry about it being wrong. Or if there was nothing in him saying, Paul, this is what's right. There would be no battle raging within. You see, the internal struggle arises when our actions disagree with our desire and our will. Whether he wants to do it or does not want to do it. Either way, it becomes he becomes conflicted by his own actions or subsequently by his own inactivity. You are your greatest conflict, friend. That's what Romans 7 is teaching us here. Why? Because of what sin is doing. And the voice speaking within is helping him 
to navigate that. This voice is so powerful, it's one we cannot ignore. It's the voice that's caused criminals to confess. It's the one that's caused guilt-ridden people to be driven to despair and subject themselves personally to very ultimate terminal means. It's the voice of the martyrs on the other side that has allowed them to endure torture even to the point of death because of the voice that drove so deeply the conviction of the truth of what they stood for in their heart. This is powerful beyond all comprehension, friends. It's the strong influence of conscience. Conscience may be difficult to understand at times, but it is essential for us because it speaks to us independently about us, about our way of thinking, about our way of feeling, and about our way of acting. This is the first feature of why it is so important. Feature number two of why the value of conscience is so important is that conscience is essential because it speaks with a voice that looks forward and backwards. Forward and backwards. Conscience speaks to us both about what we've already done and also about what we are considering to do. Listen, this is one of the reasons why conscience is so critical for us to cultivate and to develop. It is present in our considerations and in our deliberations, both in our rationalizing but also in our affecting the, 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 the catalyzing of our affections, the things that we love so deeply within It is working before we make decisions and before we make determinations to act. It is part of the decision-making process to help us rationalize for understanding and for comprehension. God has created a way to be there in this process. It constantly judges the rightness or the wrongness of our thoughts. When you have a passing thought and you go, you should not be thinking that. That's your conscience. It judges you regarding your motives, regarding the intentions of your heart and your life and your actions. We may not always follow what it says, but friends, we will always pay the price when we ignore it. Always. We cannot overcome it. Conscience works to prevent us from living a divided life by a divided mind between what we've been and what we are becoming. And as we are being transformed, sanctified into the image of Jesus Christ, our conscience is being transformed to lead us at the very initiating aspects of our intellect and our affections and our will to walk in the righteousness that is Christ Jesus. There's been a sharp rise in the mental health issues simultaneously in our culture to the moral decline. And I'll argue that this is not a happenstance, friends. Not a happenstance at all. People live in dark condemnation by their own conscience that's trying to warn them. But they think they know better, so they keep denying it. Friends, let me tell you why conscience is so important for you. For Christians with a good conscience cannot be canceled. Christians with a good conscience will not be shamed. And there will be no other cultural imputation put on us or in us that we will allow to remain because the truth of Christ guards our heart and mind in Him. 
And whatever the culture wants to say about us and whatever the culture wants to say to us, we will always filter it through the truth of Christ that is on us. Our conscience is clean and it is clear by the blood of Jesus Christ. And there will be no stain of sin that can leave its mark on the heart of a true Christ follower. The third feature of the value of conscience tells us that conscience is essential because other people can appeal to my conscience. Other people can appeal to your conscience. I've told this story before because I've learned so many lessons of my life in it. But as a young kid, seven, eight years old, after my brother and I had one of our many, many, many fights, he came to me and apologized. Now, he's not a better person than I am. He's the middle kid. That's what I keep telling myself. He actually is a better person than I am. Middle kids, they labor for peace in the family. They want harmony, right? I'm the baby. It is my responsibility to represent being the baby of the family correctly, right? In other words, me getting my way. He represents peace. I represent Lane. If you don't know me, I'm joking here. Kind of. At least I'm giving you insight into my psyche. He apologized and a few minutes later after I said, there ain't no way that I'm apologizing for what he has already admitted his wrong to. As a matter of fact, I was a little entrenched in my rightness because he apologized. Obviously, if he apologized, then I was correct. He just confirmed that. I'm just getting set up here, am I not? A few minutes later, he comes back to me and he says, you know, Lane, takes a big man to say I'm sorry. Okay, now you're going to bolster your own pride. I'm here for you, brother, when you fail again. And then he said, but it takes an even bigger man to say I'm sorry back. What? No. No, absolutely not. I'm not going there. I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to coerce me into an apology. I'm above that, brother. I was so angry at that comment at the moment. But as soon as he said it, there was a strickenness in the heart that I could not deny. I mean, there was a guilt. There was a conviction that took over me. He did not say to me, young brother, I appeal to thy conscience to bring harmony to the family by accepting my apology. No, he didn't say that. He didn't have to. It was the voice in me that knew what was right that was saying that to me. And it had me in a headlock going, if you don't apologize, you will be the only one wrong in here. Nonetheless, he rang the bell of right and wrong within me with a power and an influence that was so strong I could not deny it. The power was not from him It was from within me. You know what I said? I apologize. You know what I'm talking about, friends? Other people can appeal to our conscience and sometimes they don't even know they're doing it. It's that passing comment that they made that our conscience and and I would say the quickness of the Spirit of God within us as well applies to a situation, to a motivation, to a thought, to an attitude or a circumstance or even a statement that we've made and there is a conviction that sets in upon us because of it. 
As one author states, my conscience is like a disloyal part of my own army, ready to fight against me when it disagrees with me and to make my life miserable when I disagree with it. You say, how in the world could this be a blessing from God? It is. This is why Christian community and fellowship is so important, friends. Others can appeal to our conscience. And as we're cultivating a healthy conscience, we must regularly humble ourselves to welcome other voices into our lives that are also seeking to follow Jesus. The fourth feature of the value of conscience is that conscience is essential because God can appeal to my conscience. Now, number four and number five are very closely aligned. I need you to listen. The Puritans spoke of a conscience as God's watchman and spokesman in the soul. And while we know God's principal mean of speaking to us is through His Word and His presence by His Holy Spirit is within us, we also know that we were created in the Imago Dei. We were created in the image of God. And listen to me, God wove within the creation of every human person a way which He could speak and communicate with Him. He created us to know Him in a special relationship to Commune with Him. And the central aspect of communing is communicating. What we can say is this, that God crafted within His highest creation the way to speak to us by the very way He created us. Because communicating with us is central to His purpose for creating us. And that leads me to the fifth feature of the value of conscience, that conscience is essential because I do not need a Bible to hear the voice of my conscience. God created us in a way to be able to communicate with us because that's His divine purpose for us. And He does it in a number of different ways. And, and, And very closely to number four, Romans tells us that God speaks through His creation because His law is written on our hearts. And so it causes us to have to ask, what has shaped our conscience? Because whatever is shaping our conscience is continually speaking to us. And what Romans 1 says is that God created us and then put on us by His law a way to know Him. He is speaking of the conscience here. Friends, God will not be denied. You cannot get away from Him. He created you to know Him no matter how hard you fight against it. And this is the value of conscience. If God created us to commune and communicate with Him and He's put His law upon us, He is calling to us by the very means of His, communica- of His creation and as Christians, He is calling to us by the very work of His redemption within us To commune with us through our conscience. And then these last two, we should never forget. Listen to me, friends. There's great hope in this. Because of Jesus Christ, no one is ever beyond God's redemptive call. It does not matter how severed, seared, or diminished your conscience has become. There is hope for you today. Christian, if you are to bear faithful witness in any realm or sphere of life, and especially the public square, you must recognize the value of and cultivate a healthy, Christ-centered conscience according to God's truth. Now, I conclude with these questions. What has shaped and what is shaping your conscience? Not an easy, simple, or quick answer. 
But I want you to begin to think about that. How have you learned to cultivate a healthy conscience that guides you in walking in Jesus' righteousness? Or have you ignored, have you dismissed, denied, even seared your conscience so much that you hardly even give any consideration to it at all? For the conscience of one that is seeking, pursuing, and walking with God becomes a conduit for the blessing and the peace of His righteousness to flow freely. The conscience of the one who's seared or cut it off from God only has one recourse, and that is spiritual surgery by the divine healer. But listen to me, friends. He is a surgeon of immeasurable and incomparable ability. There is nothing that He cannot heal in you. I'm going to ask the worship team to return. Friends, in our conscience, God makes what was once undesirable to us our greatest joy and highest aim. And if today you hear the Father calling to you, it is not happenstance. It is not just something that circumstantially chose to blow in this morning, I tell you the Spirit of God is at work today and He is calling to you to respond to the very one whom you were created to commune with. Will you respond to Him in faith? I urge you today, do not dismiss, deny, do not neglect or put it aside and say, I'll deal with it later. Respond now. When the call has come for you to commune with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, help us today. Grant to us the grace to trust you. And Father, as you work in our hearts and in our lives, Father, we pray that you will identify those things that are keeping us far from you, that are causing us speculation and doubts about you. And God, you'll work by your Spirit to bring a peace that addresses those things in the way that you've sovereignly ordained to address them, but that brings us closer to you. Do this for the glory of the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Let's stand together and respond to the Lord.